Welcome to Nanioc's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 14, Eric. Nigel, how does it feel to have your thesis done? I just finished yesterday. Literally, it submitted just over 24 hours ago. Like, that's how recent it is. Do you just feel like this giant weight lifted from you? Yeah, but now I'm also like, because my mother was like, oh, what's what happens with the thesis now that you've submitted it? And so then I was like, oh, you know, it'll go to my supervisor and they'll mark it. Then it'll go to a secondary examiner to make sure that they're not like, you know, marking it in a biased way and that kind of thing. But then when I was joking about it being like, oh, yeah, the smoke clears and thesis two steps out. And it's like. Now I am thinking about thesis too. Uh, it yeah. never stops. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the real grift of academia. It just is like, well, now that project's done. What about your next one? I am still deep mm. in dissertation drafting land. I should hopefully have another draft done here in the next couple of weeks. And then, yeah, and then after that, it's like, okay, it's revision time. Revise, revise, revise. Now it's defense time. So yeah, it's it's a lot. Realize that I could probably write or try and write like a thesis on the thing that I keep banging on about on this show about how identity works in Discworld and how it's linked to like being happy with your job and things like that. I realize I could probably do that. You probably could. I looked on JSTOR and there's a comparative paucity of articles about Discworld. Oh, I'm sure. JSTOR. I'm sure. Because for a long time, it wasn't really considered an academic subject. Although I think... There's a lot more room for that sort of analysis now. Mm. On Twitter, we had a couple of very nice things happen, both at Florian Judith and our friend Lazi recommended us on Twitter to a couple of different users. So shout out to both of them. At Florian Judith also said to you, Nigel, that your pun was just onk more prolific and that they loved your pun from the last episode, Men at Arms. I'm so glad because I physically could not get those words out of my mouth in the correct shape. <laughs> so I'm really glad that it landed with someone. Uh, so thank you, Florian Judith. <laughs> you have to find the people that get your jokes. I, f I feel like that's actually a really important life skill. Hang out with the people who get your jokes. It's a very Discworld sentiment, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, that's why it fits into this. Florian and Judith, when rereading Men at Arms, agreed with us that the thing that made them think was personal is not the same as important, tagged us in that, and also said that the passage that made them emotional was the death of Cuddy and the rage of detritus. And my favorite response to that was another Twitter user at L underscore Landia who tweeted in response to that, we don't talk about Cuddy, accompanied with the Encanto gif of we don't talk about Bruno. And I thought that was just about the most perfect response to that. Mm. We also have a very nice comment from um, the Reddit r slash Discworld where I post uh, the new episodes as they come up being like, look, here's a thing you can do. And actually, this person has commented a couple times on posts uh, the user is at Lelian Weatherwax, L-E-L-I-A-N Weatherwax. They said, I loved it. A great episode talking about one great watch book. And they're right. Men at Arms is a fantastic book. Oh, yes. I've also been having conversations with Lazi off Twitter 
where we've talked about how that it probably is one of the more complex and interesting watch books. Not that there aren't other really great watch books, but it is definitely like a top tier, top tier watch book, top tier Discworld book. And what is the the Reddit forum in which you're posting these things for our listeners? Just the normal Discworld ones. If you go into Reddit and just type in or slash Discworld, you should be able to find not just that, but like plenty of plenty of people doing theories, what they like about characters, the series. Just this morning, I was going through the Reddit and someone had posted they had managed to find like a secondhand signed copy of The Color of Magic. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they were wondering whether... They were wondering whether the signature was real. And people saying, yeah, that looks pretty real. Uh, Terry Pratchett, when he signed books, an awful lot used to draw Death's Sight and write Boo beside it, as well as the signature. <laughs> All right, but it is time to talk about Eric. Eric is the ninth Discworld novel and the fourth Rincewind novel published in 1990, so the year I was born originally stylized with the name Faust crossed out and then the title Eric. It is pretty obvious what story that is parroting, and we will talk a lot about Faust, I'm sure, as we discuss this. It is also one of the shortest Discworld novels, if not the shortest. My copy comes to around 129 pages, so almost novella length rather than novel length. So this might be a shorter episode than what we've been doing previously. Yeah, mine was about the same. I could only find one adaptation, which was an audio serialization of the novel that was broadcast on BBC Four in 2013. Four very short episodes, basically, adapting this particular novel. So, quick summary. Following the events of sorcery, Rincewind has been trapped in the dungeon dimensions, desperately fleeing the things that live there, believing every minute to be his last. To his surprise, he is pulled from the dungeon dimensions by Eric, a 13-year-old demonologist. Believing Rincewind to be a demon summoned to do his bidding, Eric asks for the three classic wishes, to be ruler of the world, to meet the most beautiful woman in history, and to live forever. Wishes have a tendency to be literal, however, and hell is no laughing matter. What were your first thoughts on this novel, Nigel? I mean, it was a bit boring. I... Did not like this novel. I've only read it once before. It is not my favorite. Even of the Rincewind novels, this is not my favorite. It was, yeah, I mean, like, so I, I meant to say this in the episode we did on Men at Arms. The fact that Gaspo, also, with all the love in my heart, Tessa, fuck you. Why did you do that? Why did you put them in that order? Because you were like, Men at Arms is the 15th. Discworld book, and then I was like, God, Gaspo got to come back, and Rincewind's not back. Like, Rincewind hasn't been seen since book five. And then you're like, oh no, it's the ninth book, he's back now, in the next episode. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's evil! I apologize for stringing you along so long about Rincewind's return. Yeah, because I was, I was literally <laughs> just going to be like, I don't think it's very fair, because like, I mean, I like Rincewind, and I like that he's back. But it felt really underutilized. Because like it could have been it could have been something really, really interesting, like a send up of, of um Dr. Faustus. Two things I'll say. The first is, could you imagine what a letdown this would have been if you had read it immediately after sorcery though? Well, it doesn't come straight after sorcery, does it? Or if you're or do you mean if you're reading the Rincewind books in order? 
if you were reading the Rincewind books in order, and even if you we had read them in publication order, I believe you would have read this fairly shortly after sorcery. So I wanted to give you I wanted to give you a little space. It would have been sorcery, weird sisters, pyramids, guards, guards, and then Eric. So to me, maybe that would have given you enough space to to process this before seeing kind of what a letdown Eric is in terms of you know payoff for the the apparent death or or disappearance of Rincewind at the end of sorcery. But also, you would have read two fantastic Discworld novels and one very not good Discworld novel between those two. So I feel like it maybe would have made it worse. I don't know. Mm. But that that was kind of my logic behind it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that makes sense. I try to spread the Rincewind ones out a little bit because of the intense sword and sorcery stuff. And because they're so uneven, I feel like they're more uneven as books than the other branches are. So I wanted to make sure that we got some of the the more classically good ones in there. Apologies to any hardcore Eric fans in our listenership. I just don't think this is a very good book. So let's talk about Faustus, though, because, yeah, the title is really interesting. The way that it was originally stylized as the name Faust crossed out and then Eric, which I like as a stylization of a title. But I also feel like it's a little misleading because besides the whole he summons a demon of it all, it doesn't seem like it is very much a parody of really either version of Faust, the one by uh, Goethe or the one by Marlowe. Well, I mean, the one by Marlowe, like he asks for 24 years from Mephistopheles and then he spends all of that not doing any work. And just asking for shit, like, for Alexander, you know, to meet Alexander the Great and stuff. And then at the end, when Mephistopheles sh- shows up to claim his soul, like, the, you know, hell encroaches. So, like, thematically, I can see it. But, like, I don't know. It doesn't lean hard enough in to justify it being a parody of Faust. Because you can have the same plot beats as it, but then, like, by drawing attention to the name Faust on the title... Because it, as well, it feels like, you know, when you get a book, it's got someone else's, like, a dedication into it. This is to whoever, from whoever, or like an ex libris, this book belongs to, and they've written their name. You just cross that out and write your own name in. That's what it feels like. But it doesn't feel like a hijacking or repurposing of the story. It just feels like a waste of, um... The original Marlowe, or I suppose Goethe's Faust. I mean, I actually kind of like the idea of making Faust a 13-year-old boy, even though Eric is hella annoying in this. But I think that part of the problem is, is that Rincewind is not a good Mistopheles. Like, it, it's kind of like, okay, we're going to say that instead of summoning a Mostopheles type demon he's going to summon Rincewind which is I guess a clever way of getting Rincewind out of the dungeon dimensions but the problem is is that in order to satirize Mostopheles you have to have a character that is somewhat reminiscent of Mostopheles and Rincewind is not Mostopheles at all yeah I mean like he clicks his fingers and stuff but I mean it's revealed at the end that that's not even him that's doing it there is kind of an on-running joke in the Rincewind books where he'll like be like, I'm terrible as a wizard. Like, I don't, I don't really do a lot of magic. First, because of the Octavo. 
and then because of other reasons. And then there's this joke that sometimes he snaps his fingers and stuff happens, and it's always just as much a surprise to him as it is to anybody else. This seems to fit into that. But then at the end where they're like, oh, and it wasn't even him. It was this other demon. I I don't know. It just it kind of felt a little too convoluted in some ways and a little bit too simplistic in others. Yeah, this book is, I don't know, like it seems to be the very definition of over convoluted because like pyramids, the story was wild and all over the place, but at least it kind of had an internal like logical consistency. Whereas this one, they took the whole like wish fulfillment thing and then they were just like, oh, we're just going to go to various different set pieces and no real like connection in between. Like they're in, uh, you know, they're in the empire in the jungle and then all of a sudden they're inside the Trojan horse, basically. And like, there's no real thing. They just walk out and they're like, oh, guess we're here now. And I definitely want to talk about the three wishes and then about hell, which are the three or sorry, the four locations that they really end up going. But let's talk first a little bit about what you thought of Eric as a character. Oh, God. He's so annoying. Yeah. I mean, he's a 13-year-old boy. That's no excuse. I think he's supposed to be a send-up of, like, D&D hacker culture. Yeah, because, I mean, like, he's literally, you know, you've seen this so many times in films now where they've taken that trope where it's like, the person is there doing whatever, and then you hear their mother's voice in the background, and it's like, leave me alone, mom, but they're just, like, living in the basement or whatever, the spare room of their parents' house. Would this have been funnier in... 1990 like I feel like maybe there's some jokes being made here about like Gen X hacker culture perhaps that I just don't connect Mm, with perhaps I mean famously I wasn't around in the 1990s I was off world you were being sent here in a in a in a pod perhaps no I was just waiting for someone to summon me and eventually I was summoned by a 13 year old boy in 2000. Oh god. Yeah I don't know because it feels like if that's the case if it's meant to be some kind of like poking fun at a generation who you know is living in their parents houses it feels like the wrong book to do it because here it feels mean spirited or disingenuous whereas Mm. if you had it in like the watch books it would be a commentary of the fact that, like, I mean, if you look at Ireland nowadays, my generation will never buy a house of our own. The property market is that fucked. Yeah, I don't know what it's like in America. Probably a million bajillion times worse. Oh, yeah. Millennials and Gen Z are, are never going to buy houses. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah. I don't know. It, it does seem a little mean-spirited. And he's so annoying. Like, that's the thing is that, like, Faust in the original is really smart in the academic sense, but not very smart in terms of like thinking through of anything else. Right. Maybe that's what they're going for is that like Faust is really kind of like a 13 year old boy who's just studied all of these arcane knowledge that isn't very useful. And but in this case, the arcane knowledge is like demonology hacking. He just didn't he also just didn't seem like he did very much after the first third of the book. Like he was just sort of there for Rincewind to kind of make fun yeah. of. Every single like once they leave the Empire and end up in the back of the Trojan horse, 
they're all it ever describes Erica as doing is like piping up from behind Rincewind. Or Rincewind kicking him to stop him from piping yeah. up. <laughs> I mean, like he deserves it. I also hated the parrot. I'm sorry. Every single time. And I mean, Rincewind also hates the parrot. So I actually really enjoyed like just the absolute rage Rincewind felt every single time the parrot spoke. Mm. Because I was also feeling that rage. Why were you feeling the rage? <laughs> I don't know. I hated the joke about him not like having a vocabulary and the whole like him just being like a was name. Like, I don't maybe that's a joke based on something from British culture, but I just found it so annoying and infuriating. Like, just what are you doing? Stop talking. I don't know. I just I this parrot. I know. I just it just I didn't think it was very funny. It seems to be kind of evocative of like middle class, like middle slash working class, the way they talk, you know, oh, it's like, what's, what's name? It would, because it would appear like two or three times in the same sentence and you're like, oh, Christ. It was a single joke that was hit way too hard. Yeah. So like if, if it had happened a couple of times, maybe it would have been funnier. But like, yeah, like you said, it would happen multiple times in a sentence to the point where it was just like, why is this character even here? Like, except for to annoy Rincewind. To your point before, though, I made this comment in a tutorial I had uh, when I was in first year of college and we we're doing Dr. Faustus. The deal he makes and gets Mephisto to sign, or Mephistopheles even, is, like it says at the end, signed by me, John Faustus. And it's very much like like a child writing, you know, like John Faustus, age five on a, you know, a picture they've drawn that will go up <laughs> in the refrigerator. That's a good point. The whole concept doesn't bother me. Like the premise of this book is actually really interesting, but the way it's executed just felt like a series of really cheap jokes. Yeah. Like, like I said before, I think it's just like, oh, we're going from one set piece to another and there's nothing really to connect them in between. Do you think that Pratchett felt, I mean, it's obviously impossible to say how he felt because he is, of course, not with us anymore, but do you think maybe he felt like he had written himself into a corner at the end of Sorcery with Rincewind being in the dungeon dimension? I'm not sure because, like, I mean, Terry Pratchett's a fairly imaginative man and, like, Discworld is so wacky and zany and like outside of the laws of normal our world normal round world logic that like i'm sure he could have thought of something else but it's very weird with this one because of how short it is that it seems like he can either you know committed to an idea and then was like oh i don't actually like this one and so then just like did it off real quickly because it's so short it's the shortest Discworld book we've read so far, Bar Theater of Cruelty, which is four pages long. Well, and that's a sh- supposed to be a short yeah. story. It's not supposed to be a standalone novel. Yes, like apart from a short story, this is the shortest thing we've done so far. I did like the first part of this book, and I thought of you a lot during the first couple of pages where it's talking about how Death is the one who first realizes that Rincewind is coming back. What did you think about the continuation of the will they, won't they, enemies to lovers of death and rinse? I love that. It's so <laughs> funny because, like, at various other stages in the book, people bring up Rinsen to him and his eyes flash red. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the, oh, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> at the beginning. Or the part where they're, the joke that Rincewind makes where he's like, 
he had looked death in the face many times, or rather, death had looked at the back of his head as he was running away. Yeah, or like when the demon goes to the wrong end of the universe. How do you pronounce it? It's like Astugful. I have no idea. I was going to ask you how you thought that name should be pronounced. Here's the thing when my brain just like glossed over it. It was like, yep, that's that name. That that name, that that one. Yeah, there's some books with characters in them and I like I'm remembering a book I read as a kid called The Five Fakirs of Faizabad. It's part of like a a series to do with jinn and genies. There was one character in it who had like a really long ridiculous name. And then later on down the line there was a different character that I had seen flipping through and I was like, oh, it's another ridiculously long name. And then it turns out that they're the same person. But whenever I get to that stage, I was just like, oh, whatever said. Oh, that's that guy's name. Uh, and then just would continue to sense. I did the same for this Astigful guy. I don't like it. We're just going to stick with Astigful. <laughs> I feel like that is the closest thing. Any of our listeners have any suggestions on how to say this particular character's name? Please tweet at us, DM us. We would love to know how this character's name should be pronounced. Yeah, I mean, like, I think this goes back to the whole, like, modes of communication thing that seem to be throughout Discworld. You know, like, how the way people talk, especially, like, you know, Azrael and the Auditors and Death specifically, like, I mean, this is hell. There's a lot of media set in hell, like that book I quoted from a couple episodes back um the library of the unwritten where they talk about like think like there's a gargoyle in hell that you can't look directly in its face because its architecture is so like you know so weird and like unreal that it would just break your mind so they can't describe it. and so this is meant to just be like a sound that human throats mm-hmm. aren't meant to pronounce or i guess that's how i justified it in my head Oh yeah, that was the point I was making. Was where he goes to the wrong end of the universe and ends up at the death of everything, and death is just there, and he's like, "Who are you looking for?" And he's like, "Uh, Rincewind." And death's <laughs> like, wizard? "Oh, that guy." Yeah, and that's when when Astikful realizes yeah. that Rincewind is not in fact a demon. So yeah, I, that was pretty funny. I and yeah, death. How he's just like waiting around and he almost leaves, but then he realizes that life is possible after the end of the universe. I think that that was a really cool scene. Everything involving death in this book, I thought was actually pretty good because we start in death's house. Like there's some, there's some really good stuff with death here. So let's talk a little bit about the three wishes. And this is kind of supposed to set up the different places that they go. Because like you said, this book is primarily them being transported to these different places and meeting these different people And they're very loosely tied together by the three wishes that Eric makes. So he wishes to be ruler of the world. It takes them to the Tezuman Empire, which is clearly supposed to be a very stereotypical rendering of the Aztec Empire. Yeah, and it's even like the name is quite similar to like Montezuma. Yes. Yeah, and there are some other references like... Quezover Codal instead of Quasicodal. Yeah. yeah, the feathered boa and like yeah, there's a lot here that's supposed to be that. So it's deep in the jungles of Clatch. Because the whole point is is that when he makes these wishes, wishes often try to twist themselves into literal definitions. So you 
kind of get like it's literally what she wanted, but it's, of course, not actually what she wanted. So in this case, when he wished to be ruler of the world by transporting him to this empire, this empire has a literal figure in their mythology called the ruler of the world that they intend to kill, complain to and then kill. What did you think about this storyline or this set piece? I mean, it's kind of falls into the, you know, kind of strange orientalist vibes that were in pyramids. Obviously, I understand that it's it, it's a parody and stuff, but like taking the real life, you know, gods that they believed in and just making it kind of a ridiculous name, like like as funny on its own as Quetz Overcoatl is, you mm-hmm. know, instead of Quetzalcoatl. You know, but it's like, that's a real life figure and real life belief system that happened. And I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to try and be too woke because I know all of our right wing listeners are listening in and we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose them. Uh, No, no, no. I feel feel like we would have lost them already, but continue. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like we would have lost them by our very existence. That's a joke. But like, it feels very weird. Because it's like making fun of indigenous belief and leaning into the fact that like, you know, like this belief that they had that, oh, all they want to do with these savages is like sacrifice people and especially white settlers when they come in, you know, that kind of that kind of fear that they had. And it's I don't know, it's very uncomfortable, the fact that they the fact that they come into this and then they're straight away going to be sacrificed. We know that the Aztec Empire did practice human sacrifice, but there's been a lot written recently about how those practices have probably been overemphasized in order to justify mm. colonial conquest of of the Aztecs. And I don't know. This just felt very stereotypical. Like, yeah, like you said, like, oh, look at these people. All they care about is sacrificing other people. I did like the only thing that I liked about this was the idea that, as Rincewin said, nobody likes it when the landlord shows up. Like the idea that life Mm. is so miserable that they just when they find the person that they think is responsible for it, they want to just complain to him about all of the things. That, that have gone wrong. That was the only part of it that I found kind of funny because it really reminded me of this idea of if there is a God, then he has a lot to answer for kind of attitude. So yeah, that I liked, but the rest of it, yeah, just seemed very, yeah, just very stereotypical, very like, oh yeah, these like wild people that live in the jungle and are just really cruel to each other. Whereas, like, we know that Aztec society was actually really well-developed. Yeah. Especially compared to European society. Oh, yeah, exactly. And then the fact that, like, they keep talking about the succession of gods, you know, like, Quetzalcoatl took over from their previous god, which was, what, like a stick? And then he gets supplanted by the luggage and then eventually become atheists. But, like, they're, you know... It makes a comment that, oh, they have the luggage and the luggage never shows up. So they use it like as an excuse to kill. And even when they become atheists, it's like, which still allowed them to kill anyone they wanted, but they didn't have to get up so early to do it. You know, so it's very much like trying to make it seem like these people are just bloodthirsty, quote unquote, savages. 
Yeah. So, I mean, again, Pratchett is riffing off of something that I think was a part of sword and sorcery, like this idea of like going out into the wild against these like untamed savages. But unfortunately, that stuff does come from a place of racism and and stereotyping. So it's kind of like even by satirizing it, you're kind of participating in it. So, yeah. yeah, so that that made me uncomfortable. But there are two things that happen that I think are interesting. One, like you mentioned, the luggage. Who this whole book is trying to catch up to Rincewind. <laughs> like the luggage is so angry. One that he's been separated from Rincewind by the dungeon dimensions, but then two that he has to go through all of these obstacles to find Rincewind. I feel like this really establishes the luggage not only as a character, which we've seen before, but also as like having its own magic and the fact that it's belligerence is part of that magic. Like it travels through space and time to find Rincewind. Yeah. I mean, like we kind of got a hint of that in the light fantastic, but now we're really seeing how tight in it's like what, um, Laviolus says to him, you know, something in the wood. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Thought as much. The other thing that we get from the ruler of the world section is Ponce de Quirm, who is clearly supposed to be Ponce de Leon, who famously was looking for the Fountain of Youth in Florida. Mm-hmm. I don't care about this character, but I did think it was interesting that it, his name is de Quirm. Any relation to Leonard de Quirm, do we think? I mean, maybe, but also... You know, you got to remember that De Leon and Da Vinci are just like play signifiers too. Yeah. But the fact that they're both specifically Quirm, and we've been to Quirm before in um, Color of Magic. I don't know. The way Quirm in Color of Magic is presented, which we haven't been back to, is, I don't know, it didn't make it seem like it was in a place where you'd have the Renaissance mindset, you know, because like, they're very much like of the same kind of time frame, Leonardo da Vinci and um, Juan Ponce de Leon. But like Quirm, when they went to it in Color of Magic, was still like medieval ages, sword and sorcery fantasy inspired. So I don't know. Maybe that's why they left the two of them. Yeah. Maybe they're all, maybe they had a union and they were like, right, this country, this country isn't for us. They don't, they're not investing anything in the art sector let's <laughs> go to Ankh-Morpork let's go to Ankh-Morpork the place where dreams come true oh no you just you know that intermission song during films let's all go to the lobby but like <laughs> let's all go to Ankh-Morpork <laughs> we get to see Ankh-Morpork only once in this novel it's at the very beginning it's like in the middle of like a heat wave in the summer and we mm. get to see Unseen University briefly we see the librarian who falls into a, a pool that is holding what appears to be a sex magic book. And we also get to see the Unseen University group, I guess. We actually have one more Arch Chancellor before Rid Coley. How did that make you feel? I honestly completely forgot there was another Arch Chancellor before Rid Coley. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. I was just like, that's not Red Cully. And then I went and like thought back through the names and like, hey, this guy's never been here before. But also like Moving Pictures is the next book after Eric. So yeah. like it's literally right before 
It's really throwing off our Foursquare meme from before about who knows what sex is and who fucks. Finally, the new Arch-Chancellor, Erzolith Churn. And I like that he wasn't didn't want the job they just sort of made him arch-chancellor without telling him and it like took him a couple of weeks to understand what was happening i just assume that he died of old age because he's like really old yeah and we only see him in one scene we never see him again but it's at the very beginning where they're trying to figure out what's going on and they do the right of ash kente my favorite returning joke is the fact that their their response the, the unseen university's response to anything at least pre rid Cully is just perform the ritual of Ashkente? Do you like how Death told them that there was a million to one chance that Rincewind would get out of the dungeon dimensions, and he repeats it several times? Yeah, I mean, like that's a nice callback, isn't it? It was in one of the previous books that like million to one guards, chances happen. Yeah, they happen very frequently. Yeah, so, like, if it was anything less than a million-to-one chance or anything more than a million-to-one chance, it probably wouldn't be very likely. But a million-to-one chance, that's gonna, that's probably gonna happen. So, like, Death seems to be saying it's definitely going to happen, whereas the wizards are all like, oh, well, it probably won't happen. I thought it was very funny, the fact that, like, it's, like, Rinswin's arrival is heralded just by, like, phantom running. I don't know why it's so funny. (laughs) The, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else. He's not like, you know, writing shit up on the walls or like, you know, doing any of the kind of like traditional things you associate with like, and I know he's not a demon, but like, that's what they think is happening. And that's what Eric thinks he's summoning. But, you know, like there's no omens being left. Any like, you know, the sky isn't being turned to blood and a third of the stars aren't being thrown out of heaven. You know, it's just like, it's just running. I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> he also said, points out that there's like a, di- like wizards look down on demonologists because there's like a difference between like the academia of the wizards and like the sort of practicality, I guess, of the demonologists. Mm. The wizards, the wizards also are very aware that there are things that you shouldn't mess with, but the demonologists keep messing with it. So it's yeah. it's an interesting comparison there as well. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the fact that like the librarian is the only one really to stick up for Rincewind's coming back. You know, because oh, yeah. he's like, he misses oh, him. he's good. Yeah, he misses him. He was a good. He was a good assistant. Well, and Rincewind looks back very fondly on his tenure as the librarian's assistant. Like he talks a lot about like the boredom, but of being the librarian's assistant, but like in a good way. Like, just doing this job. Like, poor Rincewind. He just wants to be a librarian. He just wants to help out the librarian and be in the library and not get into any adventures. Like, I, you know, I hope he gets there eventually. Hmm. Second of Eric's wishes is to meet the most beautiful woman in history. And if anyone knows anything about Earth's history, you know who that's going to be. So they end up time traveling to the... A Theban Sort War. So we actually go to Sort, although there are no pyramids in Sort, unfortunately. This is ridiculous. The one time <laughs> we get to go to Sort and Sort gets burned. Maybe that's why no one goes to Sort. That's why Maybe. no one goes to Sort in the later books, because it's fucking burned. Ridiculous. Ugh, bunch of pieces of shit, I say. <laughs> 
it sort is supposed to be clearly a stand-in for Troy. But also, it's really funny because people are always like, oh yeah, the Trojan horse, it's a reference to the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, most of the references we have in literature to the uh, Trojan horse are from the Aeneid by Virgil. Mm -hmm. Because the Iliad uh, ends with the death of Hector and like his funeral. Yeah. So it it doesn't actually tell us about the the conquering of of Troy. It makes references to it, but it doesn't actually tell us about it. And so they get to meet Eleanor of Sort, who is supposed to be Helen of Troy, who is like a middle-aged woman with children because the war lasted so long, which if you think about it was probably true of the original books as well. Yeah, cuz it lasted for 10 years. Yeah, it lasted for 10 years. What did you think she was going to be doing? Cuz then as well when you talk about Laviolus, who's meant to be the Odysseus analog. You know, I it takes him a Laviolus. further. Laviolus is so good. Favorite character, like favorite new character in this book is Laviolus. But like, it, it took Odysseus a further 10 years to get back to home. So like, oh, what's her name? Penelope? Yes. Yeah, Penelope was waiting 20 years for her husband. It's not just 10 years, right? Right. And I like that they emphasize here that Laviolus slash Odysseus did not want to be there. Like, they had to... There's a whole story about how he tried to trick his way out of going. Like, he pretended to be insane at first because he did not want to be part of this war. He did not want to leave home. And I liked that they emphasized that, that Laviolus, he's not only the most capable of all of the Epheban generals, but he's also someone who just understands that war is not something that should be spent this much time on. <laughs> like, you you should not be fighting a war for this long. He just wants to go home. I don't know. Like, even from his first introduction, the one where we're talking about, like, like where he's sitting on the, the, um, the luggage feeding it sandwiches, I was like, that's a very brave move. Yeah. Especially because he was like, oh yeah, it's already eaten four people. <laughs> and the fact that he basically knows everything. Yeah, he finds the tunnel in and he's like, you know, you're from the future, is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, you wouldn't happen to know any horse races. There was also many horse races. Yeah, so we talk a little bit about time travel and the way that going too far in the distant past wouldn't actually help you make money or anything. No one, yeah, because no one remembers who. What did you think about the revelation that Laviolus is Rincewind's ancestor? I thought it was interesting because, like, I mean, Laviolus doesn't want to be there, but, like, he fulfills the heroic role more than Rincewind wants to. So it seems to be that, like, it seems to be that, like, cowardice is genetic. Or I suppose, well, not really cowardice in Rincewind's thing. Rincewind would view it more as survival instinct instead of cowardice. I like the revelation that, like, Lave and Aeolus means, like, rinser of the wind. (laughs) Thought that was very good. They also talk a little bit about how, like, that's how the generals see it. Like, if you throw a bunch of men at you know, a a war, like, and a lot of them die, but you succeed in your objective, that's bravery. But if you find a shortcut, that's cowardice. And so, like, Laviolus is, like, a coward, but he's, like, a cunning coward. But his point is, like, why would we want to waste all of these lives when we could just do it 
in an easy way. Like, why can't we just achieve the objective? And so, like, there, it is interesting to compare him and Rincewind in that sense, because Rincewind, I don't think, is as smart as Laviolus is, but he, or at least not as cunning in that way, but he does still have, like you said, that survival instinct that his ancestor had. And he, I think he also doesn't see the point in wasting life, which is kind of the point of sorcery. Yeah, like, I mean, he was the only person to ever consider that Coin was just a child who had been abused. Right. You know, and I feel like, 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 Laviolus probably would do that. And, like, it's, like, it would be a pointless exercise to kill the child to, you know, like, because it would solve the problem, yeah. But, like, it's a, a ridiculous, tragic waste of life. Right. Especially for, like, I mean, Coin didn't have a choice. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, this whole novel is kind of about summoning, trying to invite something in which will solve your problems, or, like, help you out and stuff. I don't know, but then it's just reminding me of the Mountain Goats lyric, it's from Outer Scorpion Squadron, that's like, if you really want to conjure up a ghost, cultivate a space for the things that hurt the most. And it's very much, like, when he asks Rinswin, will I make it home? Oh, and Rinswin's like, yeah, you'll make it home. And he shows a blader. Oh, I'll make it home, you said. <laughs> I think that's the worst thing Rinswin has ever done. Is not tell him what's going to happen. Yeah. I think it's really funny that he, that Rinswin keeps saying, we can't do anything else to change history. And then the next thing he does actually makes that history happen. So, like, he's the one who lets in the Ephevans through the door in, in Sort. He's the one that accidentally sets the city on fire by knocking over an oil lamp. Like, like it's all accidental, but it's interesting because this book introduces... It's not a new idea in time travel narrative, but it's new to the Discworld, this idea that... But like, it's more time travel. Sam Vimes... <laughs> This idea that time, that history wants to happen a certain way, it reminds me of uh, the Stephen King book, 11, 63, where the idea is, is that like he is trying to change something that happened, but time wants to happen a certain way. So he's almost like fighting time, like he's fighting like history because history wants to mm. go a certain way. And so even when it seems like Rincewind has prevented the history from happening history finds a way of incorporating him into itself it's a really interesting concept i'm always very interested in time travel narratives like this like the idea that like history wants to happen yeah it's an interesting concept i also like that laviolus and the uh, sortian war introduces the idea of class into the military the sortian sergeant who's like been fighting all these battles against monsters his whole life who keeps warning his yo much younger captain about going up against the luggage because he's just like i don't think that's a good idea and the captain is just like well what do you know about it like the idea that like he's so much younger but he's of a higher class so he outranks the sergeant i just thought that was all very interesting oh, i don't know it, it, it just reminded me of there's this one of the episodes of the magnus archives is about wilfred owen uh, and it talks about, like, how he joined the military, like, you know, at a young-ish age. And so it was, like, you know, went in, but because he was, like, 
of a higher social class than most of the people he ended up getting like a rank promotion just because of his class despite the fact that like more like people of a lower military rank had been there for much much longer than he had yeah because it's like the sergeant had fought all these different things and he was like in his 50s and then the captain was like 20 and he had just gone to school for like the classics and for making military speeches hmm I will say one of the funniest scenes of the books happens in this section, which is, I, I don't know why this made me laugh so hard, but when they find Eleanor of Sort and all her children, and they find the one child on the, on the toilet, and they, they're basically like, take care of the child. And then like a few pages later, he's like, what are you doing, Private Achiolus? And he's like, I was being a horse, sir. <laughs> Anytime, as much as Eric is annoying, the other children in this book are hilarious. Yeah, or he's like, I was being a horse. No, you were being Mr. Poopy. (laughs) All right, so then the third wish is to live forever. And the wish taking itself literally takes them back to the beginning of the universe. And they get to meet the creator who creates the universe, or I'm sorry, a creator, because there are many creators, who creates the universe using the Octavo. Hello, the Octavo, we get to see it again. Yeah, and they talk about it as well previously. Like, I mean, we get actual, we kind of get like an actual proper idea of how the Octavo is stored. Like, they they kind of briefly touch on it in color or in um, the Life Fantastic, but like this one now, it's like you know, in like a big concrete well. It's weird because I thought that the luggage had eaten. Didn't we talk about this that the luggage had swallowed the Octavo? At the end of the Light Fantastic, but then they're like, oh, well, now it's back in the Unseen University. So I guess at some point the luggage, like, gave it Just back. Just threw it up. Yeah. Mm. This set whole section gave me major Douglas Adams vibes from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they meet. Do you remember when they meet the people who created the Earth and they're, like, creating a new Earth at the end of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? And. Slarty Bartfast, the character Slarty Bartfast, who he's so he and the others are like they created the Earth originally and they're creating a new one because the whole point is that Earth in that in that book is a computer program or it's a computer hardware. And uh, they're trying to find the question to the answer 42 for life, the universe and everything. So Mm. this remind this section really reminded me of that because The way the creator talks about trees, especially where he's like, I'm quite good at trees. I specialize in it. You know, I take a good, a lot of enjoyment from a lot of pleasure and pride in my work. It really reminded me of the way Slarty Bartfast in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy talks about how he won awards for the fjords in Norway. How he's like, yeah, like I created the fjords. I actually won some awards for that. I I thought that was a pretty interesting parallel between those two like the idea of like being a creator of the universe you're really just a craftsman you're not like some mystical being like he makes a very it very clear that there's a difference between him and gods right he doesn't run the place he just creates it i mean i didn't pick up on the hitchhikers like potential hitchhikers reference i was more so like when the creator on screen i was like pratchett in the book question mark um I mean, that's a good question, because anytime you talk about a creator in 
a book, there is sort of this possibility of meta reference, right, to yourself, because Pratchett is, in all senses of the word, the creator of the Discworld. Yeah, but as well, the fact that they make a distinction that he's just one, like, he's a creator, but he's also a created being himself. I don't know, was Terry Pratchett a particularly religious person? I don't know. So, like, I won't say, like, oh, this is a reference to his belief in God. But, you know, like, the fact that he's just like, I made this one specific thing, but I didn't make everything. And he complains about the other creators, like, the shoddy workmanship. Mm, I suppose that, like, that really brings to mind his, the, um essay the talk he gave that you read out at the start of the color of magic episode where he's talking about like how disingenuous it feels or like you know when um fantasy stories say like beyond the castle is the house of mine father the king the shoddy workmanship of of a lot of sword and sorcery fantasy yeah yeah i think that's interesting i also it it, they don't he doesn't mention the auditors specifically but the way he talks about like this whole bureaucratic system that seems to exist like oh i couldn't take that shortcut like the inspector would be on my back or whatever that that all very much felt like an auditor situation like the bureaucracy of supernatural beings that seems to exist right because death has to answer to asriel the auditors are there to make sure to count reality right there's a creator amongst a bunch of creators it all seems very bureaucratic yeah, and like I mean, hell is even tied up in bureaucracy at the end when they actually get to it. Yeah, and that that actually seems like a good transition here because yeah, the next place they go is hell. Rincewind gets Eric to attempt to travel back through the circle, the magic circle that he made, but instead it takes them straight to hell, which is we where we kind of discover that Ast Astfickle, <laughs> however you say his name has been trying to find them this entire book because he sees Eric as a good investment opportunity and he cannot figure out why Rincewind appeared to him. They find themselves transported to hell. And yeah, we find out that Asphickle, since he's been king of hell, king of pandemonium, which is, of course, a reference, I believe, to Paradise Lost. What did you think about... The way in which Astifical has transformed hell, like this classical notion of hell, into a bureaucratic nightmare that sort of relies on boredom for torture. It's very much like, because the way hell is described in Dante and Pandemonium, I checked, is in Milton. But the, yeah, so this is both Milton and um, and, and Dante. But the way it's run and the way, like, specifically Dante's hell is described with everything being in, like, specific places seems like it's very bureaucratic. And because they have a table of judges, you know, like, King Minos is on board of judges for hell. So it seems like it is a bureaucracy. But what's interesting is that it's, like, a weird parody of, like, what Veterinary has tried to do to Ankh Morpork with the guilds. Yeah. Because what I, what I was searching was they describe someone's eye as having patrician eyes, which I know patrician is a specific thing to do with class, but I thought it was Astigful they um, describe, but no, it's Vasanego. 
that they describe as having patrician eyes. And Vasanego eventually catches Astikful into his own, a trap of his own making because they, he uses the bureaucracy to promote him out of being king of hell. Which seems a distinctly veterinary move. I mean, like, Veterinary and Vasanego, again, have... This is really interesting because we had, a, like, a parallel to Veterinary in Small Gods with Vorbis. And now we have a parallel in Faust with Vasanego. Yeah, and, and it turns out Vasanego is the one who pulled Rincewind from the Dungeon Dimensions and presented him to Eric as a way of distracting... Full, which okay speaking of like villains like Vasanego and Astikful are fine but it seemed almost like Rincewind was an afterthought to both of them it wasn't them versus Rincewind it was them versus each other they just didn't know it or Astikful didn't know it for most of the book and so like mm. oh we just kind of got the edge of a power struggle here like we got to see the power struggle but it didn't feel personal like a lot of the villains that we've been seeing lately. Yeah. You know what I'm going to say about this, Tessa? Yes. It needed to be longer. It needed to be longer. Yeah. Is that how you really felt? Yeah. I felt like if this is what they were going to do, ditch most of the stuff, ditch going to the Tezumen Empire, and then maybe you have the stuff with... Maybe you have the stuff with... Laviolus and the Sortian War. Because then, you know, like in Dante's Inferno, Odysseus is in one of the circles of hell. So, be, right. you know, you could still have that nice callback, but... And of course, he travels He travels to Hades in the Odyssey, too. Oh, Tiresias. Tiresias, thank you. I was trying to remember, it's the big um, thing in the Wasteland. The Tiresias is like the narrator of part of the Wasteland. Yeah, but by doing that, I think you would tie it better into it being like a send-up of Faust, and so have the whole thing be about that right. explicitly. And then make the book longer so that this power struggle would make sense. And so then you could write more about like the fact that Rincewind is essentially being used as a pawn without any of them knowing, except Vasnego. Yeah, because like Rincewind is the protagonist of this book, but it's... Th- Again, through circumstances that are outside of his control, like in other books. But, like, it's circumstances that he's not even aware of. Like, he has no clue why all of a sudden he's out of the dungeon dimensions. And then he chalks it up to, oh, Eric summoned him. But, like, the re- you know, with the reveal that Vasanego is the one who did that because it was a distraction for Astigfull. Like, it would have been way more interesting for Rincewind's character if you had, like, I don't know, emphasize the fact that it was basically like a manipulation on a cosmic scale. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. Like, more investment in this power struggle, more investment in Rincewind and the Faust narrative. I think that would have maybe pulled this together a little bit more. Because, yeah, it just seems like a bunch of different situations. Yeah. I did actually kind of like the the parody of Dante, though. I really liked that on the Gate of Hell... The original notice, which would have been the Dante, through me you pass into the city of woe, through me you pass into eternal pain, through me among the people lost for I. Justice, the founder of my fabric, moved to rear me was the task of power divine, supremest wisdom and primeval love. Before me, things create were none, save eternal and eternal I endure. 
all hope abandon ye who enter here. They don't actually have that in the book, but like there's the original notice, but over it is the you don't have to be damned to work here, but it helps. Because I like the idea of like Astikful has taken all the poetry out of hell. He's made it into this like bureaucratic nightmare with the potted plants and the the positivity posters and and all of those things. I I actually really enjoyed that aspect of it. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. Yeah, I also like the satirization of like, you know, we get to see some of the circles of hell. Like we see Sisyphus who's being read like a a safety manual and like Prometheus where the eagle's telling him all about mm. his hernia surgery. Like I thought that was all very funny. And like the joke about the uh, American hotel being made British and like the the boredom of that place. Yeah. But yeah, it it just seemed like satire for its own sake it didn't seem like it connected to the rest of the story very well yeah it was it wasn't in service of a larger goal which i think with dante you have to do not to sound like too much of a literature snob but like dante you know is doing a very specific thing and everything in the inferno especially means Mm -hmm. something you know, because he has the whole concept of the the contrapasso that the punishment fits the crime, right? Uh, in some ironic way, so like, you know, satirizing the punishments of some people for a specific thing, then kind of like fucks with that. So you, I, I don't know. I guess you need to be more aware. So actually, I did really appreciate though what you thought, of, what you said earlier about how Don. There is actually bureaucracy in Dante. It's very well organized. The punishment fits the crime. The demons who torture the souls all have very specific roles that they have to do. So in that aspect of it, it felt like Pratchett was maybe taking that aspect of Dante's Hell and dialing it up to a 10. But again, it doesn't really go anywhere. It just kind of serves to highlight Astikful's eventual betrayal instead of like actually telling us something about the original story yeah because with dante everything works on clockwork like when you get into um purgatorio the people who've spent like when dante's on the mountain one of the people he knows eventually gets onto the mountain who had been in hell Uh, you know so like once you've done your time in the inferno you can go out to the mountain of, uh, of purgatory and eventually all of the souls in hell of the regular people will pass through and on you know, because then when he goes out to the Prima Mobile and the Empyrean at the end of Paradiso, you know, like, it's very clear that everything works on a strict kind of clockwork, which would have been a very interesting thing to explore in the Discworld. But it just doesn't do it. I will say, though, that after reading this, I saw some what I'm going to call proto-good omens jokes. About hell, I don't know if if you made any connections between this and Good Omens. I remember reading through parts of it being like, oh, this seems like Good Omens, but also like, I feel like I'm having Phantom Good Omens syndrome, which is like reading early Discworld books and being like, oh, that seems like like this bit in Good Omens. I don't know. (laughs) So Good Omens was published in 1990 as well, so it'd be hard to say like which one influenced the other, but... The fact that there's that joke about musicians where they're like, they say all the best musicians are down here. That's a joke from Good Omens where Crowley is 
telling Aziraphale, like, you don't want to be in heaven forever and ever. Who do you have? Bach? Like, we have all the good people, Mozart and Queen and, you know, all of these, all of these great musicians. So that felt very much like good omens to me, as well as just like some of the other jokes about Vasanego learning how to use the bureaucracy to his advantage from humans. And the demons are all like, humans do that. And they say that we're the evil ones. That's also Mm. a very good omens type of thing because Crowley says that when he took a look at the Inquisition, he's like, everyone always blames us for the Inquisition, but that was all humans. Like, that was not us. Yeah. And especially the, like, at the start, there was one. The bursar turned slowly to the figure beside him. You could always tell a wizard's robe. It was bedecked with sequins, sigils, fur, and lace, and there was usually a considerable amount of wizard inside it. This robe, however, was very black. The material looked as though it had been chosen for its hard-wearing qualities. So did its owner. He looked as though if he wrote a diet book, it would be a bestseller. You know, it seemed like, I know they're talking about death once they've done the Ritual of Ashkente, but, like, it seems very much like how famine is portrayed in Good Omens. So yeah, again, like, these were probably being written at the same time, so it's, again, very difficult to know... Which one came first, but it did seem like there were some similar themes here. There's also a direct reference to Reaper Man. Rincewind, when he's talking about the multiple exclamation points on the you don't have to be damned to work here, but it helps sign. Multiple exclamation marks are a sure sign of a diseased mind. That's a quote from Reaper Man. Before I start to wrap up, I did want to spend a moment talking about Rincewind. So Rincewind is back. He doesn't make it to Ankh-Morpork by the end of this, unfortunately, even though he clearly wants to go home. He makes a lot of references to Unseen University and Ankh-Morpork as being his home. But what do we think about Rincewind at the end of this book? How do we feel like this whole experience has affected him as a character? I think it's done a good bit for his character, but I think that's also very specifically from him sacrificing coin like i think or sacrificing himself for coin sorry like that's that was the beginning of it because like he sees you know in in the light fantastic he sees two flower run ahead of him and that spurs him on you know to do something and then he gets contacted by conina in at the start of um sorcery and then it ends up because all of the other characters in the book are still in... Where are they? Are they in Clatch? Yeah, they see the new tower go down. Rincewind is the only one that's there. So Rincewind is left with no other choice but to be a decent person. And then realizing that he... You know, like, this child deserves a chance to be free of, like, the trauma of his father. Like, that's a choice he makes. And so now he's living with the consequences of that. So I think that's kind of the impetus for this change but the fact that he's like you know looking back fondly on his time in the library especially under the librarian i think it's a good sign because as well the librarian is you know the librarian is now an orangutan he you know he used to be a human and is happy with that and rincewind i think needs to like learn to be happy with the fact that he's not a particularly good wizard, but he is a good person. So, like, the fact that he's, ha- like, you know, attempting to be happy in who he is, especially because his hat 
is still in the Unseen University. Right, he's hatless in this book. He's hatless. He doesn't have a hat that says wizard on it. Feels wrong. It feels wrong, yeah. What was the line they're talking about, like, what they would need to do for Rincewind? Oh, at Unseen University? Yeah. In in Eric? Yeah, they're talking about, like, to you know, to commemorate his sacrifice at the end of Sorcery. Oh, right. They they do the little, they talk a little bit about maybe giving him a statue, but they end up just having the hat on the shelf. And the librarian yeah. is okay with it because he knows that a wizard will always come back for his hat. Yeah, that. But like the way they describe it here, it seems like very much that no one else really cares about Rincewind. They're like, yeah, he did that and he solved our problem. But they don't particularly, they're not invested in him coming back. You know, because they... It keeps getting downgraded. Yeah, they get that really cool footnote. I'm trying to, I was going to bring it up later, but this is a good place to bring it up where they're talking about how in the the book actually like references sorcery. Hold on. Let me find it. Yeah. Also like, but shouldn't they not remember? Like, it's not the whole thing that coin erased the events of sorcery from everyone's mind, which is why they think the tower of Arish has always been abandoned. Oh, here it is. Okay. The bursar was referring obliquely to the difficult occasion when the university very nearly caused the end of the world, and would have, in fact, done so if it had not been for a chain of events involving Rincewind, a magic carpet, and half a brick in a sock. See sorcery. The whole affair was very embarrassing to wizards, as it always is to people who find out afterwards they were on the wrong side of it all along, i.e. the one that lost. And it was remarkable how many of the university's senior staff were now adamant that at the time they had been off sick, visiting their aunt or doing research with the door locked while humming loudly and had no idea of what was going on. There had been some dulcetory talk about putting up a statue to Rincewind, but by the curious alchemy that tends to apply in these sensitive issues, this quickly became a plaque and then a note on the honor roll and finally a motion of censure for being improperly dressed. I find that interesting because it's kind of a poke at academia, although yeah, it does seem to go against the idea that most of them don't remember. But I do also like the idea that, like, when something horrible happens, the first thing that the people involved usually try to do is to distance themselves from it by being like, oh, I wasn't really there that day, or I didn't really know that person, or I was in my room humming loudly the whole time. You know, like, we see this in American politics a lot, where people are like, oh, I didn't really know that person. But it's like, we have pictures of the two of you, like, having dinner together, like... (laughs) You know, like, what? what is the problem here? Yeah, I can think of an awful lot of very prominent American political figures who were photographed with a very prominent American yeah. someone. Yeah. Oh, but they were out visiting their aunt, obviously. Yeah, I found that to be very good. But at the same time, like you said, it kind of contradicts the way that the end of sorcery talks about it. Yeah, I mean, because the librarians, the librarian at the end of sorcery like remembers but no one else does yeah so it's interesting that they have it framed this way but between the forgetting and the pretending that they weren't there i think rincewind's heroicism gets the short end of the stick they don't want to talk about it or they don't remember it so rincewind unfortunately does not get the celebration or the care that he deserves beyond the librarian and the luggage. On the other hand, though, I mean, it kind of reinforces what... Like, I mean, because a good person is going to do a good deed 
you know, not for any sort of recognition. They're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Which we saw Vimes do in Men at Arms when he's giving his money away to the widow and the orphans. Yeah, especially when it like doing it puts the person doing it, you know, in some form of like danger or risk. Like, so I think the fact that they don't remember that he did it kind of like reinforces the fact that it was uh, like a morally good decision. Like, I don't think Rincewind is as absolutely moral, absolutely morally good as Carrot is. Like I said, the, the last episode, Carrot is a sword that like slices things on either side. It will fall good or bad. Cause like Rincewind does do kind of sometimes awful things some of his thoughts especially where he's like i can abandon this person if it means i'll get out of this situation but like when it comes down to it like i said he'll do the right thing well i was gonna say that to me in this book it feels like rincewind is reverting to some old patterns of thinking because we get a lot of his basic philosophy is running away it does or he says it doesn't actually matter if you're running to or away the point is that you you run and you know, we, uh, I run, therefore I am. Like, there's a lot of jokes about that, of his, like, cowardice, basically. So it kind of feels like maybe he's reverting to some old patterns of thinking. But at the same time, there's no real stakes in this book that are worth him stepping up, right? Like, in Sorcery, there was some real stakes. Like, he was the only one, and he had to go do it. But this, it's just kind of like, he's finding himself thrust once again into a situation he doesn't want to be in, And there's nothing for him to really care about in terms of stakes besides saving his own life. So, of course, he's going to revert back to his old running trick. Yeah. I feel like there's not a lot of room for growth of this character in this book. And so he's just sort of stuck in post-trauma stasis. Like, you just got to think, though, like, what did he spend the entire... Like, I mean, I don't know how long it was in between... Between Sorcerer and Eric, sorry. Yeah, so three years. So, you know, pretty much four books in the same number of years. You know, and he spent all of that running for his life. So I feel like when he comes out, the, you know, all that he knows is run. Mm-hmm. Like, it reinforced... It was a situation which reinforced a negative state of thinking. So I don't know right. whether I'd blame... Like, I don't know whether I'd blame his regression too harshly on him. You know, because, like... Oh, I wasn't blaming it on him at all. Like, in this situation, I'd be running, too. I don't care about Eric. I don't care about, you know, this time, these time travel shenanigans. Like, you know, that was the whole point is that he didn't want to step up in sorcery, but he did because there was nobody else and nobody else saw Coin as a child. There was nobody else to do that job. But here it's just like, why shouldn't he run? Like, you know, like, like there's nothing for him to do except for run. I mean, his whole thing about, like, not wanting to interfere with the flow of history is very much like, you know, that's as well an act of putting distance between you and something, not just, like, Mm -hmm. the distance between presence and past, but, you know, like, the distance between, like, acting in something and choosing not to act. So there are three death sightings in this book. I've mentioned almost all of them when we were talking. The first one is, of course, at the very beginning when he's taking care of his bees and he realizes that Rincewind is about to reemerge from the dungeon dimensions. The second time is during the ritual of Ash Kente, where he ta- tells the wizards basically that. 
And then the third time is at the end of the universe where he's the last thing and he talks to Asphikal. Why is death? Why why is our death there? Why is Discworld death there? Because Azrael is death of universes. I, I mean, I think it's the death of the Discworld universe, but it's not really the death of the universe because it's it is a death, but it's also a rebirth, right? Because death mm. is about to leave and then he starts seeing the matter pop into existence and he's like you know where there's life there's also death so that you know it's not really the end of the universe but it, i think it's supposed to be the end of the disc world perhaps as i mentioned in the episode they do go to sort for the sortian ephiban war and there are no pyramids but there are pyramids in this book the tezuman do have pyramids they're the stepped pyramids of the aztecs so we do actually get to see pyramids but not sortian pyramids which I know you are particularly incensed about, Nigel. Yeah. Just give <laughs> me an entire, like, just give me an entire book that's set in sort. I'm really feeling out of sort. <laughs> the first footnote is on page three of my book. It's about the Unseen University Library's erotic book collection. The footnote is just erotic, nothing kinky. It's the difference between using a feather and using a chicken. So, there you I go. I don't understand what that means, and I don't know whether I want to. <laughs> I don't think you really want to understand what that means. It is a very dirty joke. Yeah. What was your favorite footnote? Yeah, I'm going to go with the one where Rinswin, like, it's talking about how Rinswin feels about death. Uh, the one that says Rinswin had been told that death was just like going into another room. The difference is when you shout, where's my clean socks? No one answers. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I feel like that going into another room thing is very cliche at this point. So that's a very fun reversal of that. It puts the importance on the room you were just in as opposed to the room you're in now. Or or, or instead of like the moving between. My favorite footnote is kind of a long one, but it's actually at the end of the Discworld universe where Death sees this tiny piece of matter pop into existence. Death stalked over to the point of arrival and watched it carefully. It was a paperclip. Footnote. Many people think it should have been a hydrogen mo molecule, but this is against the observed facts. Everyone who has found a, hither un a hitherto unknown egg whisk jamming an innocent kitchen drawer knows that raw matter is continually flowing into the universe in fairly developed forms, popping into existence normally in ashtrays, vases, and glove compartments. It chooses its shape to allay suspicion, and common manifestations are paper clips, the pins out of shirt packaging, the little keys for central heating radiators, marbles, bits of crayon, mysterious sections of herb chopping devices, and old Kate Bush albums. Why matter does this is unclear, but it is evident that matter has plans. It is also apparent that creators sometimes favor the Big Bang method of universe construction, and at other times use the more gentle methods of continuous creation. This follows studies by cosmotherapists, which have revealed that the violence of the Big Bang can give the universe a serious psychological problem when it gets older. I liked a lot of aspects of that footnote, but I think my favorite part of it is the idea of Kate Bush albums being a continuous creation of matter. Like when you find one, it's just matter popping into existence through old Kate Bush albums. I know that's supposed to be a dig on Kate Bush, but I actually really love Kate Bush. So yeah, I love Kate Bush. Kate Bush is great. There comes a point in every every person's life 
<laughs> I think maybe it's a queer person. Where they need to accept the fact that running up that hill, brackets, a deal with God by Kate Bush is the best song that's ever been made. Is it your favorite song? No. But objectively, it's the best song. That's like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the best film that's ever been made. But is it everyone's favorite film? No. I literally just watched the episode of New Girl last night where Jess is like... I've never seen New Girl. Oh, okay. There's a joke in an episode because Jess is a vice principal at a high school and she hates Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So she sides with Rooney, the vice principal, and she actually says this film should be called Principal Rooney Tries to Do His Job. (laughs) Which is funny up until he literally breaks into a house. Then it's like, yeah, then it's like, hmm, Edward. Yeah, maybe not. But I just think that that's a very funny, like, that's actually his job is to make sure students don't skip school. But like, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. What's something that made you laugh out loud? I'm going to go with just when Astig Full is like, they say, there's literally two choices. There's two possible directions they could have gone in. And he chose the wrong one. I don't know why that was very funny. I mean, statistically, it's a 50-50 chance, but it, it just seems to, like, it sells the fact that he's a bit incompetent. Like, you know, he chose the wrong one implies that, like, he had knowledge that one was right and one was wrong. And chose the wrong one. <laughs> I didn't mention this earlier, but the whole bit about him going to the end of the universe also reminds me of Douglas Adams because Douglas Adams has yeah. a novel called Restaurant at the End of the Universe, which involves people traveling to the end of the universe in order to witness it. Yeah, and then there's a note left at the end of the universe from the creators. Sorry for all the inconvenience. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, what's the line from. What's the line from Hitchhikers? You know, like, oh, the universe was created with a big bang and this was genuinely regarded as a bad move by by a lot of people. The thing that made me laugh actually kind of has to do with that tonally. So it's on page 60 of my book, at, right after they traveled back to Sort. And Eric has that whole thing about, like, we could make a lot of hor- money betting on horses. And Rincewind is like, we can't. Do you remember any horses that won races in Sort thousands of years ago? So the, it's the part after that. That was the thing about time travel. You were never ready for it. About the only thing he could hope for, Rincewind decided, was finding Dequirm's Fountain of Youth and managing to stay alive for a few thousand years so he'd be ready to kill his own grandfather, which was the only aspect of time travel that had ever remotely appealed to him. He always felt that his ancestors had it coming to them. Mm. I laughed out loud when I read that. I actually had to read it to Sam because Sam loves time travel stuff. But I... I like the idea of someone, like, usually when you go back in time, you have to be careful not to kill your own grandfather. But Rincewind mm. hates being alive so much. He's like, no, I think I could kill my own grandfather. That would be great. Yeah, he's like, I can and will. And yeah, when he finds out that Lavolius is his ancestor, he's like, maybe I should have told him not to get married or go to Ankh-Morpork. What's something that made you think? I don't know whether the, whether there was anything in this book, really. Because there's an awful lot of kind of, I like, it feels a bit disingenuous. This whole book, and I know I've said this so many times, the word so many times that it's basically lost its meaning, but this whole book feels disingenuous to the spirit of Discworld, and that's maybe because it's a bit short. 
Mm. I don't know. I really struggled with this one too, but I actually did. There was one section that I really liked that I thought actually had something to say. You tell it to me and I'll see whether it makes me think. (laughs) Okay. It's the only part that I can really say like this really made me think about it. So it's at the very end of the book when they're emerging from hell and they're walking up the steps of hell, which we all know the saying hell is paved with good intentions. And so these steps are... These steps actually have good intentions written on them. It's not the first time I've seen this. Uh, there's a Chris, Agatha Christie book where there's like a nightclub that's supposed that's called like hell, and it's got steps that have kind of a similar stick to it. But I really liked that some of the good intentions are very specifically talking about political talking points. So he looked down at the broad steps they were climbing. They were something of a novelty. Each one was built out of large stone letters. The one he was just stepping on, too, for an example, read, I meant it for the best. The next one was, I thought you'd like it. Eric was standing on, for the sake of the children. Weird, isn't it? He said. Why do it like this? I think they're meant to be good intentions, said Rincewind. This was a road to hell, and demons were, after all, traditionalists. And while they are, of course, irredeemably evil, they are not always bad. And so Rincewind stepped off we are equal opportunity employers and through a wall, which healed up behind him and into the world. Like I meant it for the best. I feel like everyone recognizes as like a good intention that leads to bad consequences. But the thing that got me was the, for the sake of the children and we are equal opportunity employers. Those are things that are said so many times to justify just absolutely horrific things. And I think I just, that to me worked really well like it was so weird in this book which again like you said is mostly just kind of stereotypical humor to suddenly have this moment that's like oh like that actually did make me think yeah because like i mean we have to do an awful lot about the um satanic panic in Mm -hmm. my american horror stories class and um you know like the, the that kind of outrage and moral panic and blaming it on pieces of media and censoring them and like vilifying you know uh, specifically babysitters is a big thing in um the satanic panic because those people people who worked in schools parents being accused of satanic ritual abuse and stuff because you know like oh we've got to think of the children first and this kind of like moral outrage and panic superseding any kind of logic or like even compassion because all of the people that were accused for perpetrating um, satanic ritual abuse, all of that was like, you know, it was all fake. It was all false accusations. Like, I mean, on the one hand, it did bring to light the fact that child abuse could happen within the home. That was a thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that didn't happen. But the concept of satanic ritual abuse and specifically babysitters, like that whole thing for the children censoring these media because they were, you know, going to make children violent, which is still a thing today. It's a load of bullshit. And like Lee Edelman wrote this really wonderful book. So he wrote this book called No Future, where he basically says, like, the idea of the child as this imaginary figure is used so many times to justify homophobia and transphobia And like this idea of like even all these trans laws that are coming out, anti-trans laws that are coming out in the U.S. now, like in Texas, it's always this idea Mm, of the don't say gay bill. 
Yeah, it's always this idea of we have to protect the children. We can't force sexuality on them before they're ready, which that's not what's happening at all. But or the idea that trans people are a bunch of perverts who are trying to like convert children to being trans. And it's just like, it's this idea of saying for the sake of the children is a way of justifying like all these anti-queer laws and prejudice and abuse because it is abuse in a lot of circumstances. And then the way in which we are equal opportunity employers is often used to justify discrimination in the workplace. So yeah, there's just a lot of really good stuff I think you could unpack here. This episode did not end up being shorter than than our usual episodes. Uh, good intentions. That was another good intention I had. I thought this would be because Eric is so short, but we found stuff to talk about. Our next episode will be another twofer. We will be returning to Lanker for another Witches Shakespeare parody in Lords and Ladies. And we will also be reading the short story Troll Bridge, which is connected to that to Lords and Ladies in a way that will become obvious after you read it. Okay. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can mainly find me on Twitter, at Slicey Nigel, where I've been tweeting about the fact that my thesis is now submitted. Uh, Yay! Yeah, that's it. That's it mainly. Um, you can find my other shows, Hyperfixations and Archive of Myers, on wherever you get your podcasts. We've also, uh, we submitted our episode with Will Wood of Hyperfixations for a National Student Media Award in Ireland for Podcast of the Year. So hopefully we'll at least make it onto the, the nominations of the shortlist uh, this year. That's exciting. I'm very excited. Hyperfixations is one of my favorite podcasts. So I'm oh, very you. excited. I make that. <laughs> yeah, you do make that. What about you, Tessa? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. We are also currently doing a second series on that channel called Sam Watches Star Trek, where I ask Sam questions about watching Star Trek. So it's very similar to this. It's, they're much shorter episodes, but it is very similar to this in the sense that I am interviewing someone who has not watched who is watching something for the first time, I should say. You can find Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Check out our Instagram if you haven't already. There is a lot of really great artwork that Nigel has made for this podcast, and that is all on Instagram. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. President Astrogal, sitting in a pool of light in his huge, dark office, blew into the speaking tube again. Hello? He said. Hello? There didn't seem to be anyone answering. Strange. He picked up one of his coloured pens and looked around at the stack of work behind him. All those records, to be analysed, considered, assessed and evaluated, and then suitable management directives to be arrived at, and an in-depth policy document to be drafted, and then, after due consideration, redrafted again. He tried the tube once more. Hello? Hello? No one there. Still, not to worry. Lots to do. His time was far too important to waste. He sank his feet into his thick, warm carpet. He looked proudly at his potted plants. He tapped a complicated assembly of chromed wire and balls, which began to swing and click executively. He unscrewed the top of his pen with a firm, decisive hand. 
He wrote, What business are we in? He thought for a bit, and then carefully wrote underneath, We are in the damnation business. And this, too, was happiness. Of a sort. The end. <laughs>